0: There's an old Native American uh, truism that says if you want to go fast, you travel alone. And if you want to go far, you travel together. And I add to that my mother's adage that when people make a circle that excludes you or includes you in a way that you don't want to be included, you make a bigger circle that includes them.
1: Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. And Vernice Miller Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk
2: with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. Today, we continue our series on climate equity, and this is your host, Vernice Miller Travis. Last week, we spoke with Rachel Cletus, Climate Policy Manager for the Union of Concerned Scientists, and lead author of the report, Surviving and Thriving in the Face of Rising Seas, Building Resilience in Communities on the Frontlines of Climate Change. It was a great conversation and an important part of this series, and I encourage you to catch up on that episode if you haven't listened to it yet. Today, we pick up the conversation with one of my favorite people, Derek Evans. Welcome, Derek.
0: Thank you, Vernice.
2: Derek Evans is the director of the Turkey Creek Community Initiative and a managing advisor to the Gulf Coast Fund for Community Renewal and Ecological Health. So, Derek, let's start with you sharing a little bit about these organizations, the Turkey Creek Community Initiative, the Gulf Coast Fund, and what you do and what's your background.
0: Right. I guess the most important thing is that I'm a sixth generation African-American native of the Turkey Creek Community in coastal Mississippi, in Harrison County, and uh in the city of Gulfport, and as such, my community has been living in a small coastal drainage basin or watershed since eighteen sixty six when they acquired three hundred and twenty acres of previously undeveloped swampland to live and develop and cultivate free lives and uh, cultural institutions in eighteen sixty six during the first year. Uh, After the Civil War and the end of Southern chattel slavery, in which they were free to do so, and for many years, its relative isolation, which frankly explains why the community was was situated where it was in 1866, it was the least desirable and the most affordable land for these sort of like internal domestic, if you will, immigrants, right, from slavery to freedom here in the Mm -hmm. United States, to exercise their rights of self-determination. And, uh, they're like, okay, fine. We'll take the heel of the loaf. You know, it's, it's, it's our turn to get on board here and, and we'll, we'll, we'll make it work. And they did for five generations. In fact, the community's relative isolation out in the outlying areas of Harrison County, you know, a few miles North of the Gulf of Mexico on what were historically called the backwaters, the backwater bayous on the Gulf coast, or, uh, also sometimes called the sticks because it's where the piney woods of the coastal plain meet the palmetto and the uh, ferns of the uh, gulf coastal plain. They did well. They developed schools, churches, homes. They built their own homes. They timbered their own material to build those homes and churches. And around the turn of the century, they even had enough land wealth in proximity to what were then the primary transportation routes, which were the coastal streams and bayous and rivers that led to the Gulf, that they were able to, in a self-determined kind of a way, participate in the sighting of what was becoming an increasingly industrializing nation and in Gulf Coast. In particular in my part of the country, the forest industries began to take off, you know, to develop railroad ties and naval stores and turpentine and so forth for the expansion of railroads across this country and other things, even up until the 30s, with the electrification of the United States and the need for utility poles, that were not only timbered in our part of the country, but were treated with what we know now were some very nasty chemicals like creosote and so forth, so that they would endure forever without rotting and what have you. So my community went from being entirely undeveloped, swamplands, to being sort of a pastoral, forested, agricultural type of thing where people were subsistence farmers and fishermen, right? To a community that was the site of multiple coastal timber industry employments and facilities. And in many ways, especially culturally, land use decision-making and so forth, because it was out in the unincorporated areas of the county, was very autonomous. But With the economic growth and development of the Gulf Coast over the years, and of coastal Mississippi in particular, and and most specifically, with the legalization of dockside gaming uh, casinos on the Gulf Coast in the uh, late 80s and early 90s, my community's location at the intersection of 20th century transportation infrastructure and so forth, such as the uh, US Interstate System and I 10, right? Mm-hmm. Highway 49, the state's busiest highway, the Port of Gulfport, which is the third or fourth largest, busiest port on the Gulf of Mexico, just four miles to our south. Pretty much fast forwarded my community and the space that we occupy, right? Into what I've often described as the bullseye or ground zero of somebody else's ideas about the future. Mm-hmm. And that was quite a big cultural and environmental and socio-political and economic jolt. You know, this also happened like all over the country around the same time as the sort of the disinvestment and the abandonment of um, our rural and urban minority communities and centers as far as the influx of things like well, for instance, you know, the crack cocaine epidemic, you know, or the U.S. Department of Education's decision under Reagan to decide that ketchup was a vegetable for school lunch, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, and that kind of sort of deregulated, uh, laissez faire, free for all, Jacksonian democracy, you know, uh, that didn't prove well 150 years earlier, becoming sort of the modus operandi of the day, had its impacts on Turkey Creek. So there was this national and Uh, Context of disinvestment and and disregard and displacement, what have you, and so a heightened need for the community to be self-visioning and self-determining, which we'd always been right since the beginning that I described. But nobody had in their textbook or in their toolbox, myself included, as a with a background in education, a background in civil rights history. Uh, I taught civil rights history for. Many years at Boston College. I was a researcher for the Eyes on the Prize film series chronicling the civil rights movement. I'd even in Boston, uh, where I'd gone to to go to college and then graduate school, managed to foresee the eventual gentrification of this urban black community and uh, became, you know, sort of a self financed anti-gentrification machine, right? Where I you know, I I acquired and redeveloped four multifamily homes in Roxbury and, and turned it into a nice little urban village of affordable quality housing for working families, and particularly women and children of color. So I had a lot of personal academic and experiential and travel background to bring to bear in a place like Turkey Creek or Roxbury or what have you, but frankly, even I did not have in my background knowledge and skill sets or relationships the requisite tools and resources to deal with what I would call, you know, the last quarter century of multiple displacements by, first of all, community investment and disinvestment patterns increasing vulnerability to impacts of climate change, you know, the whole nine yards.
2: And urbanization.
0: And urbanization. And so, you know, we didn't know for 150 years in Turkey Creek, and I don't think anybody knew anywhere, that the value or the role that would need to be played by things as off the beaten path as The Historic Preservation Act, right, of uh, 1966, or the Clean Water Act of 1972, you know, or or these other laws and so forth that in my case, for example, didn't fit into the traditional lexicon of civil rights history and and, and, and social movement uh, theory and change.
2: Which then led to the creation of the Turkey Creek Initiative?
0: Absolutely. One of the things that I have become familiar with in Boston was something called the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative, which is right here in...
2: uh, In Roxbury, DSNI.
0: Yes. And so TCCI's name is in large measure a shout out to the initiatives with an S, the multiple plural initiatives that the Dudley Triangle in Roxbury or folks in Los Angeles or my folks in Turkey Creek would need to uh, discover, envision, and cultivate to uh, maximize their prospects for self-determination and survival in the future. Again, at ground zero of somebody else's ideas about that future. And so, you know, without knowing that it was going to include some of the arts and the sciences and the legalese and the policy work and the da-da-da-da-da that it was going to, I knew it was going to be initiatives, plural, and they needed to be community-driven and they needed to be community-vetted and even sometimes community-concocted. And so that became Turkey Creek Community Initiatives with a very deliberately broad and somewhat, to some people, ambiguous mission statement to conserve, restore, and utilize for education and other socially beneficial purposes, the unique community assets of the Turkey Creek community and watershed, cultural, historical, etc. And that was the mission, and that was the purpose of TCCI for a number of reasons. Number one, I knew that in the state of Mississippi, right? Nina Simone's Mississippi, Goddamn. Emmett Till's Mississippi. Medgar Evers' Mississippi, and more recently Hurricane Katrina's Mississippi. You know, this Mississippi that of Trent Lott and Haley Barber that. The last state with the Confederate battle flag emblem still in the state flag, right? That Turkey Creek and its community initiatives, in order to be successful and effective and victorious in the end, to get us back on the path of self-determination, was going to be very carefully crafted and executed to not be squashed in the traditional paradigms and discourses surrounding race or environment. Which is what happens when people who are under resourced, under capacitated, understaffed, misunderstood, speak their truth to that power about the community's challenges and woes as they are discovered, because many of them aren't even known until you just stumble upon them. Right? That we needed to go on a long, long, long run here for Turkey Creek, and I remember the old saying couple things, and this is endemic to the mission and operation of TCCI. There's an old Native American uh, truism that says, if you want to go fast, you travel alone. And if you want to go far, you travel together. Hmm. And I add to that my mother's adage that when people make a circle that excludes you in some way or another, or includes you in a way that you don't want to be included in precisely that way, you make a bigger circle that includes them. Hmm. And so this is what pretty much TCCI's MO has always been was to recognize the very long list of community ailments and challenges turn those into an equally long if not longer list of possible prescriptions or remedies including things that we had never thought of before like coastal ecological restoration which you know now is bearing fruit nearly 20 years later. Historic preservation, even looking at a a historic, long-standing, uncleaned EPA toxic cleanup site, and saying, you know what, that's a historic site as well as a, a headache. Let's uh, use some creative visioning to frame this in such a way that it makes our circle bigger. That it, when you have that list of possible solutions, it attracts from within the community and from without the community. Potential contributors to the problems need to be solved. So all of a sudden, you're going to start getting scientists, attorneys, architects, urban planners, graduate students, volunteers, service learners, high school kids, Boy Scouts, you name it. The Audubon Society, who recognizes, as we discovered, that our community was an important birding area because of the fresh water that the birds that have to cross the Gulf of Mexico twice a year It would be the first or the last water that they could sustain themselves with after or before making this journey. And so this level of place-based community self-education and broadening awareness and always sort of churning that back in to, like I said, a prescriptive list of possible informational or relational or even story resources and capital to invest But, you know, ever making that bigger circle, that's what TCCI existed to do and has done so well to this day.
2: So I was going to ask you the question of what motivates you to do this work, but I think anyone who is going to be listening to this podcast can hear it every word. When you went to college in Boston, when you first moved to Boston, how dislocated did you feel? Because one of the great things about the Gulf Coast, for those who are not familiar with it, it, it is a subculture unto itself. And folks who are from the Gulf Coast tend to really, really revel in that culture and that uniqueness. But you can't find it anyplace else. So what did it feel like when you went to Boston? And what kept you there?
0: You know, that's a really interesting question, for niece because... Boston, Massachusetts, and the Gulf Coast of the United States are two places within our country that both, and far, far more so than most places, are places that people have heard about, think they know about, think they might even understand, and don't, right? They're very, very complex, enigmatic, environmental, social, cultural, and historical phenomena. And so for me, Boston was both coming, you know, any under Boston was on the one hand, quite obviously, both a culture shock on multiple levels, particularly at the time that I came here in the 80s, like I said, again, during the height of the Reagan, Reagan era, uh, the height of really the, the real boom days of Donald Trump, right? When he and others were making money hand over fist, with uh, everybody else making none, and losing what benefits and accesses and services and self-orientation as communities that they had had prior, right? So, But I was also at the same time very excited about the truth of the matter that Boston was a place where if you paid attention to the right people and the right things, you could learn things here that, quite frankly, you couldn't learn anywhere else in the United States. For example, there are many, many types of quote-unquote white people, (laughs) right, in Boston and New England as compared to, you know, what one would grow up with uh, in the South or in particular in Mississippi, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like when you've got like these urban and old white class and other ethnic division lines and you see how they operate and how really there's something going on with the flow of power that may put a black community like Roxbury at the very bottom, but it operates and functions in such a way that you realize, you can appreciate here the varying degrees of freedom and privilege versus unfreedom and disprivilege that is really the systemic way in which the United States of America as a capitalist pseudo-democracy has been held together for so long despite its fundamental and inherent flaws. Like, nobody's really quite at the top of this thing, but they're sufficiently located somewhere along in that pyramid uh, to help keep those below them off of the uh, parts of the dining table that they <laughs> that they have access to, right?
2: And that felt very familiar to you.
0: It did. And it was also felt, but more importantly, it felt very instructive. It felt very instructive. Yeah, I mean, when you – I often talk about my friend, the late Pam DeShiel, who was in the Lower Knight Ward.
2: Indeed.
0: You know, and who was one of the co-founders of the Gulf Coast Fund who well, a lot of people didn't understand her and the MO there in the in, in the Lower Nine, even before Katrina, never mind after, where basically she and her organization, the Center for Sustainable Engagement and Development in the Lower Nine, was very much akin to TCCI and the Dudley Street Neighborhood Initiative in that quote unquote, it did it all. She did it all. They did litigation, you know, they did protest in the street. They also did urban planning, they did historic preservation. They did wetlands restoration. They did bird watching. They did architect. You know what I mean? Community garden. Yeah. And so, yep. I think one of the reasons why Pam and myself were able to fathom this more quickly than some other folks is that we not only were you know knew where we uh, the place where we were and Mike Place, Turkey Creek and hers the Lower Knight Ward right there next to Mister Go and all of that. But also, Pam had spent her childhood in Boston, Massachusetts. And this is what I was saying earlier: hmm. you can learn things in places like Boston you can't anywhere else. Boston is a very old, arguably the most Anglo-Saxon city in the United States. It's been it's reinvented itself a thousand times with every you know cyclical ebb and flow of American history, economic history, what have you, and it always lands on top when the nation goes through these hugely disruptive economic and other type of cycles and and catches, you know, like a severe fever, Boston gets a little sniffle, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's because it's got one of the most resilient, diversified economies. It's got the schools and all of that stuff. But you can walk around in Boston and familiarize yourself and have been able... I'm sure you could have done this 100 years ago or 200 years ago, and familiarize yourself with virtually every type of possible organization or mission you know organizational mission or or what have you to participate in build upon improve upon here or elsewhere you follow what i'm saying mm-hmm. like th- there's every kind of non-profit every kind of educational institution every kind of sort of large and small business venture and when you're walking around you know this is where people like frederick law olmstead intentionally tried to improve the urban experience for all by developing you know a network of both designed urban green spaces, city parks, as well as the retention of natural areas like Stony Brook or the Fenway or what have you. And you can walk in any of these neighborhoods in Boston, multiple blocks, right? And you can see multiple centuries of architectural innovation and change and repurposing. And when a person is exposed to that, and goes back to wherever, Turkey Creek or uh, Uganda, you know, what have you, Mm -hmm. your, what teachers call schemata, your background references, you know, sometimes just an observation with your eyes are increased so much. So I had a teacher once, the greatest teacher I ever had, who told me that it was no accident that the overwhelming majority of the most impactful quote unquote spokespeople for the race the black race, right, historically, like Frederick Douglass, Dr. Du Bois, Frederick Douglass, so on, even Louis Farrakhan, and so forth and so on, had spent formative time and years in and around Boston, Massachusetts. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. But if you want to, now, then you go to the Gulf Coast, which is this other enigmatic thing, like I said, where everybody's kind of heard of it, you know, they heard of the gumbo, you know. Frito-Lay has a Cajun flavored potato chip now for the last 15 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? Pe- pe- <laughs> people don't heard of the Gulf Coast. There's some reality show or so- pseudo-reality show called Swamp People that's out there. Okay. People know, you know there's, you know the Superdome <laughs> was the biggest indoor sporting arena whatever. Indeed. Everybody been to Bourbon Street Indeed. and you know. So, the more of that sort of like Disneyfied Gulf Coast as a tourist trap has prospered or developed in the American or international psyche, the more obscured and displaced the reality has been, right? Indeed.
2: So, I want you to tell me about, without spending an hour, because I know it was a particularly painful experience, but what the impact of Hurricane Katrina was and Hurricane Rita on Gulfport and on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, and then the need for the creation of the Gulf Coast Fund for Community Renewal and Ecological Health. And then we'll talk a little bit more specifically about this climate change and climate equity discussion that's emerging from that experience.
0: Okay. I remember when Hurricane Katrina hit, and uh, my first thought was that this event is either going to be the final coffin nail for Turkey Creek and communities like it that are peppered up and down the I 10 corridor from Florida to Texas. There are many Turkey Creeks. You've heard me say that a lot of times, Renee. And I said, you know, this big, catastrophic, category five, biblically proportioned, epic disaster, meta disaster, is either going to finish off Turkey Creek and its sister communities or open the door for their survival, um, and, 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 and and transformation, particularly as the most, not only impacted, but instructive places on what not to do again. Right. And so for me, when, when you, or someone asks me, you know, my takeaways from Katrina, what the experience was like, it was a very bizarre hybrid, right. Between the scale and the scope of destruction and displacement on the one hand but imagine being someone at the end of the civil war or at the end of world war 2 in europe which is how i felt and how pam and others felt who started the gulf coast front that this is also like a threshold or a harbinger and an opportunity to sort of lift up what community wisdom has been knowing and saying all along particularly in the last decade or two, the previous decade or two, about the uh, adverse impacts of uh, poorly planned urbanization, uh, increased environmental engineering and destruction and pollution and offshore drilling and you name it, right? Increased investment in third world dirty economies based on energy extraction and voyeuristic tourism uh, at the expense of local culture and ecology and folkways, we thought of this as the possible light or the possible door pathway or exit off of a bad interstate, right, onto something else. And we figured that the eyes and the nation of the world being upon the Gulf region as it was for that shining moment would give wind or fuel to our existing understanding and visions with regard to the you know, the pretext, the impacts, the legacies of Katrina. And I think the biggest tragedy to come out of Hurricane Katrina was that that didn't happen. Hmm. It didn't teach anybody anything except for people who already knew what they knew. It was teaching us all. And that was the ridiculous and real heartbreak for me. We were fortunate in Turkey Creek not to have lost a single life when that storm hit like Not a single life. Really? Lost a lot of property. We didn't lose a single life because of the same reason that other communities that may not have lost what they could have lost in terms of life and property pretty much stepped up and got to it. I'm telling you, this is ground zero, not only of climate change and Hurricane Alley and, you know, extreme extraction and all of that stuff that we we talk about. But it's also ground zero of cultural, historical self-reliance. I mean, this is, this is a, these, Turkey Creek is a community where, you know, the young men got out there. They braved the, the, the winds and the water and the stop signs flying around in the air like ninja stars to go save their neighbors. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. Out of their homes. And we didn't lose a lot, a single life. My cousin, I got to give a shout out to Deshaun Thompson. Uh, they call him the stormwalker of Turkey Creek. All right, that brother went out there like never mind them superheroes on Netflix. Okay, this brother went out there and 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 he found my boat, my my 17 foot John boat, my skiff, flat bottom boat. Put a pine cone in it in the plug so it wouldn't sink. And they went and they plucked people out of homes, including my mother and my stepfather, because I wasn't home. I was in Boston when the storm hit. Uh, it would take me a couple of days to get back home, but. They uh, got those out of those homes. The people were, you know, up on top of their furniture, the uh, water rising through the rafters, white water rapids out in the street. I mean, they took, they took, and people did that in New Orleans too, you know? People, people did. Mm-hmm. I mean, they really, really did. And that's the part, you know, see, Vernice, I'm a type of guy, you know, I, I, like I told you, I'm a sixth generation descendant of Turkey Creek, which means prior to that, I'm a, there were 14 generations of slavery in these United States. And I'm a descendant of that too. Mm. And I'm also a descendant of my father's line, which is Native American, okay, Lumbee's from Southeast North Carolina. And so I don't, I am past being surprised, shocked, or put out by the uh, intentional and unintentional oversights, right, of the system, right, of of racism and privilege and so forth and so on. I consider that par for the course that we're, we're playing over here on this side of the Atlantic Ocean for the last... 500 years. And I don't say that to excuse it, but I say that to say that in Turkey Creek and those people that saved one another in New Orleans and those people that came up that Mississippi River, those fishermen in their boats to get those people, you know, off of that bridge and so forth and got turned around by the National Guard and others, these self reliant, hard to kill, wonderful, last remaining surviving vestiges of like what was once truly, you know, great and sustainable, okay, about community in the United States or in the South or in the Gulf region, we don't have a whole lot of time to complain a bitch about 911 not picking up the phone. We know they're not gonna. Yep. You know what I'm saying? We know that the jury is as likely to come back with a not guilty verdict on Emmett Till, right? as anything else. And so and and on and on and on and on. What I'm saying is we're not resigned to injustice. We're not resigned to uh, the structuring of privilege and access and stuff in inequitable ways. But we will not be resigned at all, you know, to inefficacy on our own parts. You follow what I'm saying?
2: Absolutely.
0: So this is where TCCI comes from, Turkey Creek Community Initiatives. And this is where the Gulf Coast Fund for Community Renewal and Ecological Health came from. If traditional funders of social health, or if they really want to, you know go all out and, and these traditional funders of social justice, right? or traditional funders of environmental things, or even environmental justice, can't get themselves together, and they didn't, okay, to properly frame and address and respond to the impacts of Katrina. Which requires an understanding of the pretexts, right? You know, they—they in—in fact, they allowed that disaster to be construed as mostly a social, not environmental, right? Disaster, mostly an urban, i.e., New Orleans, not regional disaster. It, it called it begged for a federal response, not a state-by-state response. It was five states impacted by a socio-environmental disaster, but all of the above cut it up into the little bite-sized parts that they thought you know, were within their mission or programmatic or other boxes and prerogatives, we didn't have that luxury. So we formed the Gulf Coast Fund for Community Renewal and Ecological Health to create the intersectional self-resourcing mechanism to distribute, it was over $5 million to over 250 organizations in five states that could perform miracles with the small grants that we were able to provide for them. Well, nobody's going to sit back and wait for Kellogg or Ford or Oprah or whoever, right, to figure out where the hell the Gulf Coast is, who the hell the Gulf Coast is, what is the sort of connective tissues and and vicissitudes of the region that describe or explain what has happened with this disaster and how to lessen the likelihood in the future. You don't have time to wait for that. So we created that, and likewise, same thing with journalism and storytelling. We can't be waiting for CBS, NBC, Cable News Network, or the rest of C-SPAN to come and like get the story straight. We created the Bridge to Gulf Digital Storytelling and Community Journalism platform to tell our own. So that's not to say, again, that is not to let the others off the hook, but it is to say ain't nobody waiting for them.
2: So, Derek, is that is the Gulf Coast Fund what? You all meant by resilient communities, because that term's getting thrown around a lot now. And But is that what you meant? Did you give shape, form, and fashion to that?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, you know what? This is the sad truth. As pleased as I am and should be that people are now talking about climate justice and resilient communities, and you know as better as anyone, Vernice, how the vernacular shifts just in time for the people who are trying to catch on to it and get the map and the of the landscape clear in their heads, they go from smart growth to sustainability, from sustainability to su- you know resiliency, from resiliency to the next thing. Meanwhile, all it is is what we were talking about all along. On that point, give me your
2: definition of climate change, climate equity, and climate justice.
0: Well, first of all, it begins with I, I think there are three key pieces. Number one, it begins with self-determination. Nobody knows better than a community itself what its circumstances are, even when that still needs some additional layers because of issues and 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 so forth that maybe haven't historically been in the lexicon, right, of 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 community need and survival. But nobody knows better than the people who wake up in a community, which way the water flows, how much more there is, you know what I mean, since that mall was built across the interstate or what have you.
2: Especially if you've lived in the same physical location for six generations.
0: Yeah, which is more likely to occur on the Gulf Coast and in the deep south and in other such places than anywhere else. This is not, you know, Manhattan that's constantly being-
2: It's not a transient population.
0: Right. So there's there's a self-determination piece there. The second thing is, and I and this is really important, the first item on defining resiliency is any community that is in the crosshairs of somebody else's plans for the future of that space, you can talk all you want about clean water, walkable parks and the rest of it. If that community is in the crosshairs of some predatory aspiration, or as the Bible would say, coveting your neighbor's ass, right <laughs> that is not a very resilient community. OK, so if the, in other words, if there are people, uh, uh, you know, the Lower Ninth Ward, let's take the Lower Ninth Ward or Turkey Creek uh, or Africatown in Mobile or Manchester in, in the Houston Ship Channel. If somebody with more money and more time and more resources to, to expend on long term visioning and planning has an idea of what they want, that space, Turkey Creek, Lower Ninth, Africatown, et cetera to look like in 10, 15, or 20 years. And you don't know that or know about that, or maybe you do. But the point is, you're in the crosshairs of somebody else. You are the target. You are the bullseye of somebody else's preferred land use or demographic makeup of where you live. You can forget the rest of of the definition of resiliency, right? Because that is inherently, you're, you're doomed. So, that's why I say self-determination is such an important part. Communities have to be self-defining, uh, self-visioning, and then resourced by themselves and from without, by government agencies, etc. on down the line, to be resilient. And by that, of course, now I will go ahead and agree with some of the other definitive features that you hear out there, like intersectionally uh, healthy... <laughs> Right <laughs> you know what I mean, but it starts its it, it starts with like get out of the crosshairs,
2: so Derek, let me ask you, would you say that folks in Turkey Creek and in other Gulf Coast communities that they saw the climate changing, they knew that people were not being equally protected from those changes, and that what was required was a whole new vision about how to protect all communities, the justice element. But they saw this coming and they had seen it coming for a long time. You're
0: absolutely right about that, Vernice. We saw it coming, we were living it. It happened. It's happening. We know exactly where we are historically, geographically, demographically. It's we're not confused. You know, we're not waiting for somebody to produce a white paper to explain to us, you know, where we're at and what situation is. But at the same time, We also have experienced for decades and know equally as well that we're also living in a context where our inclusion is not enough. Our leadership is what's needed.
2: Absolutely.
0: Uh, So, you know, we don't, I don't need to be flown or any, Sharon Hanshaw and the rest of them, we don't need to be flown to the University of Vancouver or to the University of that or to this federal agency in Washington, D.C. to be included in the gradual, far too slow piecing together of the truth about this stuff for other folks. We need to be empowered and entrusted and enabled to lead. And that is what we do to the best of our ability.
2: So you are featured, your family, your community, your extended family are featured in a documentary film entitled Come Hell or High Water. What's the film about And what do you think it has done in terms of focusing and bringing more opportunity to Turkey Creek?
0: Well, the film began as a former fellow production intern from Boston uh, when we were making Eyes on the Prize back when I was in my early 20s. Leah Mahan, an independent filmmaker, began to accompany me home in 2001 to Turkey Creek to do what was going to be more of a cultural documentary about the history of this very interesting and quirky low African American community that I come from. And what we discovered in the course of her making that film and um, me, you know, serving as a sort of a historical advisor, really, uh, not a subject at all, was that the unfolding history involving agencies like the Army Corps of Engineers, issues like wetlands protection, many, many, a myriad uh, challenges posed by rapid irrational urbanization was such that looking back was not going to be a it was not going to, I mean, who wants to put the place in a museum uh, <laughs> as it, as it marches to extinction and there's a chance to save it, you know? And so I actually quit my jobs in, in Boston and, oh man, I just left, I, I literally, I left a life. I packed a truck and a dog and went home, you know, to Turkey Creek to discover what is there to be done, and how can I be a part of making sure that it is discovered and done by myself and others? And there was a really great cohort of people already on the case, if you will. But And Leah just continued to track that story for the next 12 years. And much to everyone's surprise, you know, it came to include Hurricane Katrina, came to include the uh, immediate aftermath of the BP uh, Deepwater Horizon explosion, the oil spill, as they call it. Uh, which was more than a spill, and that's the story. You know, it's a twelve-year. I, I reluctantly ended up having to be the subject of the film because it, it it needed to have a human being to connect all of these points
2: and to narrate that really complex story. Right.
0: Right. Right. Now, what does the impact? I'll tell you the impact. The impact is. And this, I really want to put this out there, man, to everybody. This speaks to the power of story. Nothing changes the world like stories that travel, okay? Whether it's Peter taking the gospel to Rome, (laughs) right? Muhammad taking his revelation, and, 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 you know, or whatever. Stories that travel change the world, you know? And in our case, the story of Turkey Creek is so emblematic of many places that it's resonant, many pieces of it are resonant with many different diverse audiences and audience types. I think that locally, in Turkey Creek and in Mississippi, the impact has been amazing. Because the story is, I would say, has two, like a yin and a yang side to it. Like there's the list of just egregious, inhumane, evil ailments, if you will, you know? Uh, that the community has to endure or or, or is up against, Katrina, BP, uh, mayors calling the community a bunch of dumb bastards, you know, on the front page of local newspaper, et cetera, et cetera. Toxic contamination. But then on the other side, in addition to that story that reads like a police report, there's the part of the story that's very, very hopeful and aspirational about visioning a future that is more consistent with our noble past. And that resonates with people. You know, it's kind of like I tell people, you know, Dr. King didn't give his address at the Lincoln Memorial in 1963, opening up with, I have a problem, right? <laughs> he said, I have a dream, you know? And so the fact that the communi- this story is such a well-woven narrative between challenges and opportunities or dream, if you will. What's happened is it's it's lifted Turkey Creek's star, and and frankly, the old guard in Gulfport, nobody wants to be the next one to be the bad guy in this this ongoing story, right? Which ain't over about Turkey Creek, and so as a result, you have oh uh, about a, almost a year ago now, this is the only environmental justice community on the Gulf Coast in five states that I'm aware of that has received or you know a dime. Of BP's Clean Water Act fine money allocated for coastal restoration. You know, the money's flying all over the place on the Gulf Coast to restore this salt marsh and that maritime forest and this thing and that, but none of it's in the hood, all right, except in Turkey Creek, in part because we have had for years now a pre-existing watershed plan that called for Ecological restoration, back when we had no idea when or if resources to do it was ever going to happen, it was just on our big, long laundry list of stuff that can and should happen here, and that if there's anybody out there or here that can make this happen or move this ball forward, this is what the community needs and wants and knows it. So the fact that the story is out there has helped make sure that, you know, the governors and the senators and the Army Corps districts and the state DEQs and the mayors and them, they have to like behave differently than they have in the past. You know, either by omission or commission in the past, harming the community, and be more proactive and supportive of what the community wants and what the world knows the community wants because the story's out there. So there, that's that's the power of story.
2: So, in your view, Derek. And in light of recent presidential election outcomes, are there things communities can do to make themselves better prepared to withstand or recover from climate impacts?
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, One of the most, in my opinion, important prerequisites for resiliency um, is to have a very, very good, solid, local grasp, right, of your uh, potential resources, relationships, partnerships, including very unlikely ones sometimes. And what happens sometimes when, you know, those of us who do resiliency work in environmental justice or climate justice communities is we're naturally torn, or our time is torn, right, between local work and broader uh, national advocacy, right, Mm -hmm. uh, relationship building. And it's hard to burn that candle at both ends. And I've been thinking lately about this election in terms of, well, how much more opportunity it's going to create for people to really strengthen the more important ties that bind them at home. You know, um, in places where, unfortunately, oftentimes the school teacher, the medical health professional, the well-read climate activist or advocate... The traditional old, you know, straight up civil rights minded individuals and in, in sector of a local community aren't given the, the time or the space to get on the same page to create the level of sort of local coherence um, and direction setting. Right. That's very critical. And frankly, is what is going to makes you more resilient and makes it possible to survive what is actually a national and international step away from resiliency, right? Which is the election of Donald Trump. So you know, both globally, nationally, locally, that's not a big gain at all, right? Quite the contrary, for resilient communities, climate resilient communities, and so it's almost like. When a farmer encounters inclement weather, what do they do? They go into their shed and sharpen their tools, right? And the most important tools when you're talking about resilient community is your neighbors, okay, one another. The children that are coming up that need to be able to pay attention, better, closer attention to what their vibrant um, 20, 30, 40, 50-some-year-old elders are doing around this kind of work. And... um I'm looking at it that way.
2: And there's some um, nobody knows exactly what this change in administration is going to mean for environmental protection, enforcement, regulatory actions. But one of the thoughts that's circulating is that a lot of responsibility is going to be pushed back to the states. What is that going to mean in terms of work with Gulf Coast communities around resilience and Mississippi DEQ. is are, are there good working relationships there? And is there stuff to build on?
0: There are good relationships there, you know, and we got to continue to work on those. I'm of the camp that believes that there's a lot of people in state and federal government who are really good at what they do and want to do it to the best of their ability, if allowed to by their higher ups who tend to be, you know, appointed or whatever by who's elected. And those have, for a long time, for us, been some very fruitful relationships, and I hope that this, it'll continue. I think, at the same time, that I'm not optimistic, you know, that um, those folks in those agencies or those agency budgets themselves, right, are going to survive. I don't know. We'll see, right? But whether they do or not, the internal relational and story capital, right, that communities have to develop to be not only more resilient, but to be able to advocate effectively for the things that they need to become more resilient. This is a time, I I hope, for cultivating that, uh, so that whether the relationships, whether the resources from the state or federal agencies are there or not in the next four years, that You know, to be better prepared for the subsequent next four years, right? By having an even stronger, clearer, more complete self-assessment, right? Self-preparation for when the sun rises again is not a bad thing.
2: Well, thank you for that, really, your thoughtfulness. About these issues, you do not seem at all freaked out, as many people are, about this change in administration, but we just have to keep pressing on, right? And the work will continue to be done. Communities will continue to be at threat. But as you say, coming together and developing those local resources is what's going to make people stronger and more resilient. So we really appreciate you sharing your thoughts on this with us, Derek. So we just have three more questions, which we call the lightning round. Can I just add one thing, Bernice? Please.
0: You know, I'm going to paraphrase the thing about how the arc of the moral universe being it being long and...
2: and Bending and towards, justice. towards
0: justice. That also means that the the arcs that comprise that arc, which now includes climate justice, right, is also inherently long and also inherently bends towards climate justice. And there are... And the reason we've all been raised up and taught that by Dr. King and others is because we do, from time to time, have to make peace with the fact that there are stretches of that arc that are particularly uncomfortable and particularly disappointing. And we have to be reminded that it does bend towards where we want to go, need to go, and are going to get. Having said that, I would then encourage folks to repurpose again Michelle Obama's thing about when they go low, we go high. Well, you know, if folks are going broadly, nationally, globally insane, right, about a range of intersectional questions and issues that impact us as far as climate resiliency and social justice and traditional civil rights and what have you, we have to go to some type of a parallel high that, again, I said I think largely is, has to do with local relationship building and strengthening, peer-to-peer relationship building and strengthening in sister communities across the country and nation. And also, this is really key, man, opening ourselves up to finding some of those unpredictable, unlikely sources of sustenance, protein, and support that we might be surprised are all around us, Um, and have been for a while and haven't noticed.
2: Which also makes me think, Derek, that now is as good a time as ever to continue to build the circle, the environmental justice circle, to include those working class and low-income white communities who are also impacted by the same forces that EJ communities are, and that they need to know and understand in a genuine way that this struggle for justice and equity is a struggle that includes them as well. It is not separate from them, but they are in this circle.
0: Absolutely. My mother just recently reminded me from the book of Ecclesiastes that, you know, there's a time.
2: My favorite, favorite Bible verse.
0: A time and a season to every purpose under heaven. Indeed. And that this is clearly, clearly. Some might think it's a time for war. I don't know. I think it's a time for gathering stones together. Indeed. For war that may not, or may or may not be, occur later. By war, of course, I mean, metaphorically, you know, some of the big Mm picture battles. And having said that, too, I want to say that, you know, when I first got back home to Mississippi to start doing the work that we do here in Turkey Creek, we were well into a famine period where we had George W. Bush as president, We had both houses of the Congress controlled by the Republican Party. And in particular, the state of Mississippi was singularly well-positioned, where Mississippi normally often finds itself 49 or 50 on some of these indicators of the state's social health and so forth. Uh, It was actually arguably number one in terms of who our elected officials were and what levers and individuals they had access to. I'm talking about... Right,
2: Haley Barber was your governor and the chair of the the Republican National Committee.
0: And we had Senator Cochran, who chaired the Senate Finance Committee. And of course, we had former Senate Majority Leader, Trent Lott. So we had the most, arguably the most powerful uh, federal delegation in Washington, D.C. And at the gubernatorial level after 2003, when Barber came in, That was aided and abetted by this incredibly, uh, just seamlessly efficient machine to enact those individuals' agendas for this state. But it was actually in that environment and in that context that we recast the story of Turkey Creek from that of a much maligned, misunderstood, fractious, almost like Gaza strip of the 70s you know what i mean mm-hmm. to a place where r- remarkably an unprecedented and incredibly diverse circle of stakeholders and friends from near and far gathered around a very very compelling uh, story of need and hope and i w- that would be my prayer at this season For other communities, other Turkey Creeks, you know, around the country that, you know, use this time, you know, to turn inward, find your kindred souls, your missing kinfolk from your family tree, whatever that may be, you know, across race lines, geographic issue areas or what have you, which is what we've been saying all along, right, to people about climate justice and intersectionality. It's it's like it's not just a straight up linear boxed set of uh, a rubricized area of interest and, and, and intrigue, but it's a complete holistic intersectional space and and it's an inherently an evolutive space where it's oftentimes not as much about the destination as much as the journey and the process mm-hmm. of getting there. And frankly, in, in communities that are as screwed as some of ours are, it's definitely not about condition. As much as, frankly, and it is about that, but as much as it is about just like health or or wealth or whatever, the direction that you're in or that you're on.
2: Indeed. It's inspiring, inspiring thoughts. And I really appreciate you reflecting back on sort of the political context of where the Gulf coast was, particularly the Mississippi Gulf coast after hurricanes Katrina and given us that, that memory that we could all look towards that, you know, who knows what opportunities are going to come our way. We have to be prepared to meet those opportunities. So last three questions, which we call the lightning round, I'm going to ask you these questions. I want you to be pithy and answer with the first thing that pops into your head. Okay? Boom, boom, boom. Ah! If you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to more resilient, more sustainable, and more equitable communities, what would it be? One change or one leverage point?
0: To take greater control over the socializing education of our young people, to... More often, do what they're naturally inclined to do if given an opportunity, which is connect dots. What one
2: action could our listeners take to help build a more resilient, equitable, and sustainable future?
0: Do it at home. (laughs) Be the change that you want to be, that you want to see.
2: What will resilient Gulf Coast communities look like 30 years from now?
0: They would be celebrated as the proverbial Bethlehems and Nazareths or the city on a hill that Boston has called itself for 400 years to guide folks for generations to come on how to get out of a bad situation, make the most of what's available and that can be done, and to provide models for actual self-determined resilience.
2: Well, unfortunately, we have to wrap up this amazing episode with you, Derek Evans. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to you all joining us next time on Infinite Earth Radio.
1: Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the local government commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com. Or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Infinite Earth Radio and Twitter by following at Infinite Earth Radio.